Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage. Building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Veris Age Institute colleagues, Ed Kless and Dr. Reginald Lee for the fifth time. Reginald, you're a masochist. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I, I, I love hanging out with you guys. I look forward to it. It's a pleasure. Well, I only made you a fellow so we could avoid giving you the gold jacket for your fifth appearance. So this is like <laughs> mandatory service. So, but well, oh, there you go. I, I don't think our listeners need to know your bio, but just real quick, Dr. Reginald Lee is an engineer with a passion for business and math and is a pioneer in debunking the validity of accounting information for managerial purposes. I love it. That's how I met. That's how I met him. Um, and as a replacement, he developed the business domain management uh, concept, which is mathematically sound from a cash perspective, which is what really matters. And he is a professor at Xavier University's William Williams College of Business and is the author of five books. The first one I read was Lies, Damn Lies, and Cost Accounting. Still the best title ever, Reginald, of, of any book, especially in accounting. Sure. And uh, your most your latest book is Project Profitability. Is that that's right, isn't it? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, you have um, the book Strategic Cost Transformation. And I was uh, honored to be able to write the forward to that one. And I know you got two books under contract, too. So maybe we'll talk about that. But sure. really, thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure. It's an honor to be with you guys. So, Reginald, I'm going to ask you a question on behalf of a group I talked to yesterday. I'm not going to name them. They know who they are. Uh oh. Because I know they listen to this show. Um, and here's the question without timesheets, how do we know we did it profitably? How do you measure cost per client? Now, this is a smart group, obviously. And they said to me, love the portfolio approach, love looking at the portfolio. But even when, uh, an investment banker looks at a portfolio, he can still see the return by stock or index fund, mutual fund, and, and throw out the bad apples. Mm -hmm. So I know you're working on a book on this, but how would you answer that question? How do we know the profitability? How do we know we did this job profitably? I think the first question we have to ask is, how are we defining profit? Because there are really two ways of looking at the term profit. One is, did I make money or not? And the second is, from an accounting perspective, did the revenue generated exceed the costs to, pro to generate the, 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 uh, the, the good or service that we sold, right? So I look at this two ways. Number one, um, from an accounting perspective, um, if I need to calculate the profitability from a gap perspective, then I've got to use gap tools. I, I really don't have any options to do that. Um, so it will tell you if it's accounting-wise profitable or not by using the gap tools. However, as you mentioned before, my interest is in uh, cash, really. And so from a cash perspective, I take a look at revenue generated versus the cash spent to generate the revenue. So an example, 
let's say that I've got a firm, um, a law firm, for example, or an accounting firm, and I take on work and I use my existing resources to generate that, to deliver that work, right? So I can calculate an accounting profit by looking at the time, the rates of the accountants through partners and say, well, this is what it costs me to do the work. However, when you look at it from a cash perspective, it doesn't mean I'm spending that much money to do the work. The money is spent in their, in their, uh, their, their um, salaries and such, right? So I'm paying them whether they're doing this work or not. So if I bring it in, I'm actually making money by spending very little. Now, in the instance where let's say that I'm doing tax returns and I sub some of the work out, then I've got to spend money on someone else who I'm sure. subbing it to, right? So as long as the revenue I'm generating is greater than the, um, the, the money I'm spending, then I've made money. So it's very, very different than looking at it from an accounting perspective, because I would realize from a cash perspective that I can take this business with very little money spent versus an accounting situation where I may say, well, geez, it cost me you know, $1,000 to do this work and they're only paying 900, I'm gonna lose money. Well, no, you're gonna lose profit, accounting profit, but you're gonna gain $900 worth of cash that you wouldn't have had otherwise. The argument seems sense. to, it does, it, it absolutely. It makes sense to Ron. <laughs> the, 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 the arg, but the argument seems to be that, well, we have some jobs that are over 100% because we're utilizing value pricing on some things and it's going really well. We have other jobs that are 90, 80%, but then we have some jobs that are 60, 50. And at least by tracking time and doing all that, it, it, it helps us identify those. Now, of course, my counter argument is, well, if you did after action reviews quicker, you would identify you know, when a job is going south and you would identify what the real issues were. But it, that argument is very, very difficult for us to overcome with, and I am talking about an accounting firm. Sure. The accounting so, mindset. A couple of thoughts here. Number one, um, and it, it's interesting because I was actually talking about this in class just a little bit ago. Now, when you're looking at capacity consumption, so let's take a step back. I look at capacity as being a, a key component to managing cash because that's where we spend most of our money. We spend it on people, labor, we spend it on materials, space, technology. So we're spending all this money. Now, when we're doing work, we should be able to estimate. Now, how accurately or not we estimate is a different story, right? Right. But we should be able to estimate the capacity consume, uh, consumption requirements to do the work. So when we do that, we say, okay, we're going to be able to do this tax return, for example, and these are the resources we'll use, and this is the amount of time it should take. Now, not only after action review or maybe internal after action review, as you're managing the project, to be able to take a look at things like were deadlines met at the proper uh, quality level, for instance. So I'm I mean, it's more of an out output-based uh, argument, right? Because I want to understand that I'm using my resources effectively, but needing to know to the nth degree how much time they spent, it shouldn't necessarily be relevant. Did they get the work done in time or not? Now, if I go back and I say, was this hard for you or not? Looking at their skill set, for instance, for some people, a junior accountant is going to take much longer to do the research and everything that they need to do for a tax return versus a partner, a seasoned partner who's done this for a significant amount of time. A, we should understand that and through experience, understand or be able to create the estimates. But then if we can't create the estimates, at least we go back and say, all right, so help us understand this. We budgeted about three hours. Did you come close or not? And if we could see that it was a significant difference, yeah, it took me about an hour, then that's one thing. If it took me about two and a half hours, it may not be an issue. If it took you eight hours, that's another issue. So I would want to want, want to understand the extremes versus whether there's a small variance because 
if someone's taking the time and they say, hey, you know, for this particular uh, tax return, I had to look up something we didn't anticipate. Or are we going to beat them up because you didn't factor that in when you were costing the project? And so to me, what's most important is understanding what the work, what the work requirements are, what the deadlines are, what the quality requirements are, and then take a look at, did we meet those? And how can we improve through the after action review? Yeah. So let me, uh, one more question and then I'll turn mm -hmm. it back to you. But Reginald, you're, you're, you're a math whiz. So I've tried another angle on this entire argument I, and, and go with the assumption that gap is correct. We're trying to compute accounting profit. Timesheets supposedly throw off profit per job or per customer or per hour. So shouldn't we be able to reverse engineer just from timesheet data, the accounting domain profit? When you ask it that way, right? If, if accounting domain throw, you know, throws off uh, a profit and timesheets correspond to that profit, shouldn't we be able to reconstruct our P&L from timesheet data? You can't do it. Good luck. Yeah, it's going to become very tough. I think one of the things that people don't really understand, and let me take a step back. Um, for those of you who haven't read uh, Strategic Cost Transformation, what we do is we break down organizations into two business domains, the operations and cash domain, which is where business activities occur, right? So we buy capacity primarily, we do work, we create output, and some of that output we sell. And those are the things that affect how much cash we generate or lose. And so there's the operations and cash domain, and then there's also the accounting domain, and that's where we have to calculate the accounting numbers. And the suggestion is that I can't get pure accounting data from the operations and cash domain, they're separate. So the idea here is I'm gonna to try to figure out what to do with operations and cash data to try to create, let's say the cost that goes into the, the uh, service. The problem with that, that I don't think a lot of people understand, Ron, is that to calculate a cost is both subjective and arbitrary, right? Is subjective because when I go to determine the cost of doing a, um, a tax return, for example, what information goes in? Do I look at, uh, you know, how do I figure out the rates of the individuals? What realization am I going to use? Um, what allocation technique am I going to use? How are we going to handle overhead and administrative costs, right? All of these are choices. And so when we go through the choices, that's going to affect what the number actually is. So it doesn't tell you really anything about consumption. It tells you more about how you choose to calculate this number. Because if you make different decisions in terms of what the rates are, what the accounting technique is, et cetera, I'm gonna get a different number. So if I don't know what these numbers are, it's almost like playing whack-a-mole, what's the right number and I'm trying to chase it and I don't really know. So if I don't know what my cost is because it's subjective, then how's that going to affect my profit? The second thing is I argue that accounting costs are arbitrary. And here's why I argue that they're arbitrary you pay your, your uh, accountants um, a certain amount of money to be at work. What we're trying to do is put a value on that time. But there's no relationship between what you pay a person and the work that they do. It's not as if, for example, if I, if I go to another meeting or teach another class, is Avery's going to pay me more money? Well, there's overload, but for the most part, they're not going to pay me more money. So I'm trying to create a relationship with, between two things that are independent of one another. So any relationship that I create is going to be mathematically arbitrary. So when you calculate this cost, it's both subjective in terms of what you put into it and how you model it. And it's arbitrary because I, I'm forced to create a relationship between two things that have no relationship. And, and here's where I'm going to jump in because this is exactly as you're taking uh, taking this through. I'm thinking no accounting firm that I know of allocates the cost of sales 
by, by client. They don't think, okay, how much time do we spend trying to land this customer and allocate it to that customer after the fact, after they get it. None of them take the square footage of their rent, the square footage of their general and administrative expenses for their, for their people. How would they allocate that? How would, and it would, when you ask them, so how do you allocate square footage of, of your rent to this to each engagement? They look at you like you got four heads. He's like, well, how would I? It, well, and they say, well, if I were to do that, I would just take the total of my customers and divide it by the total of my customers. That's an arbitrary allocation too. It is. <laughs> You're just substituting one arbitrary allocation for another. What, what does this matter? Right. And, and see, that's why I think that what we try to do is limit what the accounting domain is for. Because once we start getting into how do we allocate this, how do we allocate that, then we've got to go through all these gyrations to calculate the number. And the question is, how are you using this data? What decisions are you making? For instance, if you allocate a cost to a customer and then you get rid of that customer, does the cost go away? No, it's still there, right? And so from an operations and cash perspective, I'm, I'm still paying that rent. So whether that salesperson is going after customers or not, whether I'm consuming that space or not, from an operations and cash perspective, I, I'm, I bought it, I, I paid for it, and I'm using it. So if I get that data, I really can project in the accounting domain anything I want. But if we're trying to make decisions in the accounting domain, that's not where we need to be. We need to be where we're actually making the decisions that affect what goes into the accounting domain. What we make, the decisions we make will flow into versus be a transformation uh, mechanism to create the, co- the cost on the other end. Right. Well, Reginald, this is great. It's fine. But and I just want one more thing on this. The hourly rate that they compute these realizations, it's got profit built into it. That's true. So it's 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 not cost accounting. It's got profit. It's profit forecasting or something. So anyway, folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And do check out our Patreon channel where you can subscribe to the show, get our bonus content. And that is at patreon.com slash TSOE. That channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. More minds are better than one. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors, including Melio, uh, an accounts payable solution that both you and your clients will love. Go to melio.com slash TSOE to get started for free. sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Accountants and bookkeepers, listen up. Save time by streamlining your customers' payables with Melio. Melio lets you make all your customers' business payments on one simple dashboard. There's no monthly fees and you can send ACH transfers for free. Best of all, Melio syncs with your accounting software so everything is organized. Do yourself and your customers a favor. Join Melio so you can spend less time on payments and more time growing your firm. Visit Melio.com slash accountants for more information. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now.
Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise welcome back everybody we're here with dr reginald lee author of lies damn lies and cost accounting my favorite book um reginald we were talking about how do we know if it's profitable and you said you have an alternative. I would imagine this is going to be part of your new book that's going to come out eventually, Managing Engagements to Improve Cash Profitability, yep. Engagement Economics. Yep, that's absolutely it. And so one of the things, I, I think that accounting profit is a very dangerous uh, metric. And the reason I think it's dangerous from a decision-making perspective is this. If I believe, it, first of all, if I assume accounting profit is cash, then I think that profit ties into how much money I make. Mathematically, they're not as for the reasons I just mentioned before. Um, but what happens is when people look at profitability and they say, well, you know, it cost me $1,000 to do this tax return. Um, I'm only going to generate 900, so I'm going to get rid of it, right? And so I've, I see so many companies that think that profit is money. And so therefore they do things like customer rationalization, product and service rationalization. They get rid of the products and services they think are unprofitable, maintain the infrastructure. And the result is they end up losing money because now they don't have the same revenue stream, but they still have the same cash outstream, which is their infrastructure. So uh, a, a former student of mine and I, she graduated an accounting student of all folks um, who ended up going to Deloitte. We wrote an article that deals with this particular issue. Instead of looking at the profitability of a customer, we compare the resources consumed, uh, going back to the estimates from before, and then the improvements of the estimates with the after action review to the revenue generated. So what that does is that gives us, it's the exact same data that we use to calculate a cost. But what it does, it just tells us basically, you know, working with one customer or one opportunity is more efficient than another. It's just a comparison to the resources consumed and the revenue that's generated. And so what that does, is that allows you to say, well, you know what, we really screwed this one up because we put someone with the, without the right skills on a fairly complex tax return. What that means is that, you know what? it's less efficient tax return. It doesn't mean I've lost money on it because I still generated that $900. I've just consumed more of that resource than I thought I was gonna spend. So we propose that to keep companies from making decisions that will cost them um, the ability to make money by getting rid of certain customers that they, th they think they shouldn't be doing business with, getting rid of different products that they think is unprofitable. Because we find that in most cases, when I see companies making bad cash decisions, it's tied to this whole notion of calculating profit and thinking it's related to money. And it mathematically, it's just not. Right. Like Jeff Bezos used to say, you know, I can't pay my light bill with margin. Right. 
it, it's right. all about free cash flow. And that's really the only thing that he looked at. Um, there's this book, The Amazon Way, and it's really interesting. It's like the 14 lessons from Amazon or something. But in the appendix, it's all about free cash flow and how Bezos was so uh, you know stuck on that. That was his baby. That was his metric that he looked at. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Plus pricing can, can help with it too. If you have minimum prices, then you already know you're profitable if you're bringing in a minimum price. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, good point. Um, well, thanks for that. I think that'll, I think that'll help these folks. So Ed, I'll well, turn it back to you. I just want to finish up on this too, but, and, and the point you made earlier around is an important one. And that is if you, if you added up all of your, your P and L's for each job, would it be the sum total of your, would it, would it add up to your, the P and L for the firm? And the answer is no, it wouldn't even come close. No, it wouldn't right? come close. I and, mean, this is the, the same thing that happened to Steve Jobs, right? When he came back at Apple, he really, he's like, I got all of these departmental P and L's from everyone and all of the departmental P and L's added up which showed Apple was making a profit, except we looked at the actual audited reports. We were, we were losing a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah, Reggie, I think we talked about this. I can't remember it, but I'll tell the story real quick. When uh, some game company, I forget, Ed, was the Electronic Arts, was suing Apple. Tim Cook was on the stand. He was being grilled. And one of the attorneys uh, for, for Electronic Arts asked him, well, what is the profitability of the App Store? And Tim Cook said, I have no clue. We don't run separate P&Ls in Apple. We're one company. It was the best thing Steve Jobs ever did was come in and put the entire company on one P&L mm-hmm. rather than having these silos with all these. This is another issue in firms as well. They have these internal transfer prices that they, you know, if we borrow labor from another silo, they'll have to assign that cost and who gets the revenue and all that. And it's all just accounting. It has it really nothing is. to do with the economics of it. And think about the negative implications of that, right? For instance, if you and I work for the same firm and you create incentives through some of these, these allocations and such to, for me to not work with you, then what's going to happen? There's a, there's a limitation in terms of the value that we may be able to bring because there's knowledge I have that you don't have. There's knowledge you have that I don't have. We hear different things. And so if I'm creating incentives by how, I, you know, who gets what revenue with a sale, for example, I just wonder how is that good for doing business? It makes it easy from an accounting perspective, but is that the right way to do business? And I've never seen a situation where that has led to, yes, we do business more effectively because here's how we're going to allocate the revenue. Why would I spend time with you if you're going to get all the revenue? Right. 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 It it doesn't make an awful lot of sense. The other thing it does too, Ed, if you reverse engineer and try and go from the timesheet back to the income statement, it proves our point or your point, especially about how the timesheets are full of lies. You'd have all these excess hours. You wouldn't know what to do with them. It, it, would, it, would, it would demonstrate that these two things don't balance. There's, a, there's another variance for you to work out. Yeah, Reginald, just to follow up on that, in case I, I about, was it four or five months ago, I did a poll on LinkedIn and I sent it out on all my social channels as well as uh, of uh, TSOEs as well. I think I got close to 400 responses and 72% of people said that they, they lied on their timesheet, either too many hours or too few hours, right? 72%. I, I, we, I did another session about two weeks ago, asked the same question, same result. Actually, it was closer to 80%. This is like, what, if, if we know that 80% of the people are not telling the truth on their timesheet, 
what do you think you're actually you're, you're not you don't have actual anything you have optimal cost maybe mm-hmm. yep. maybe you have optimal but you don't have actual anything or even <laughs> compliant costs right because we right. budgeted 45 <laughs> so report 45 right regardless right, right. of use work 60 or 20. right right because the answer is you don't put on the timesheet what what happened you put on what what you think should have happened or right. what your boss thinks should have happened or what the customer thinks should have happened mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So really nuts. Well, we, we've only got about four minutes left in this segment. I'm maybe going to cross into a whole nother topic. Maybe we can even bring it over to the next next segment. But Ron and I were out at a, a dinner earlier this week, a lovely dinner celebrating the 25th anniversary of a, of a firm that we're close to. And we happened to sit at the same table. So the six other people at it, these were mostly then customers of that firm. Mm-hmm. And two of them were just telling their story. You know, what are you doing? One was, uh, was creating a mining operation out of Nevada. Another was doing... A, uh, a, a an event business out of Las Vegas as well, and both stories were were in were alike in that the biggest thing the hurdle that these guys were both experiencing was governmental red tape and regulation and permits that they had to get and all of this stuff. And you're close to academia as well as doing some other stuff with with uh, entrepreneurs in your area. What are you seeing? Is that is that a big problem for where you sit as well? It it is, and it's it just feels like it's getting worse. And there's, there's the government side of it. And then there's also, um, when you take a look at things like, for example, with minority suppliers, uh, there's a lot of red tape they've got to go through as well. And I think the downside of all this is number one, what's, how's the regulation working out for us? You know, is it allowing us to do business more effectively with the mining group, for example? Uh, you know, I can imagine the amount of money that they have to spend, the amount of time that they have to spend that keeps them from going into business. And the question I have is how many companies just give up and it, it's just overwhelming to them. I know, for example, with, with my firm, there was a, a red tape associated with being a minority supplier. And I said, you know, A, I don't necessarily like the concept of my firm being a, a minority firm like that. I want to be able to compete on capability and not because I look a certain way or my DNA is a certain way. But the other side of it is, uh, you know, you got to jump through all these hoops. And it's just frustrating. I mean, they were asking me, I started my business out of my, out of my house and they asked to come look at my office. I said, well, it's off my bedroom. We need to come look at your office. It's, it's, it's off my bedroom. I can just take pictures. No, we have to come. And the question is, you know, what purpose do these regulations serve? How are we in a business, a pro-business type of environment while we're creating all these barriers for companies to be able to do business? I know that, uh, I, you know, some of the entrepreneurial companies, like the challenges are they don't know what, what rules and regulations in many cases they have to abide by. So they go down the path and make mistakes. Oh, you didn't do this. Oh, you didn't do that. Then they've got to spend money on lawyers to make sure that it's, it's covered. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a pro-business guy. And I think that what we're doing a disservice to the creation of organizations to be able to go out, do business uh, because of, of, of the constraints created by, by red tape. So yes, we see it, um, disappointed by it. And with the way things are going right now, I just don't see it turning around. It seems like we're looking for more regulations, uh, more restrictions, more red tape than less. And I wish we could just kind of think about how do we get in a, in a situation where we are truly pro-business? You know, folks are really quick to say, well, you know, entrepreneurs and small businesses are, are, are where growth comes from, but it's also where death comes from <laughs> if you're going to kill them and strangle them uh, before they're able to actually grow. 
Yeah, a, a big, big problem there, clearly. Clearly, and I think that it's it's so funny that 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 uh, I think people don't see this. I think maybe you're going to have to create a whole new new domain. I think we're going to have the the cash domain, the accounting domain, and the the government red tape domain. Maybe. There you go. <laughs> How much capacity is spent on filling out paperwork and paying fees and such, uh, and on lawyers? And yeah, lawyers yeah, to get but, stuff yeah. done. Well, we're up against our next break. I want to remind folks that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is thesoulofenterprise.com, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We are sponsored by 90Minds. If I need a mind, get one at 90mind.com. Uh, we also have a shout out to our sponsor, Blake Oliver at Earmark CPE. Uh, you can take a look at his stuff at earmarkcpe.com. But right now, a word from those sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Reginald Lee, our fellow Verisage Institute colleague. And Reginald, another question that this group asked me was, especially in the era of COVID, when a lot of people were working remote, Mm -hmm. uh, is how do we manage staff utilization when we can't see them? You're an engineer. How do you apply? How do you how do you reply to that? (laughs) So that's a very interesting question. The first question I have is, what does it mean uh, when they say to manage staff? Utilization, right. staff utilization. Oh, staff utilization. Okay, yeah. so, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I think one of the issues is that folks are looking for answers. Let me take a step back. And one thing I often talk about is people looking for a gas tank on a Tesla, right? <laughs> and so if, if I've got a car that's a Tesla and someone comes up and says, well, where do I put the gas in? 
oh, where did I store the gas or you know, where's the exhaust pipes? I'm not going to see it on a Tesla because I'm looking at something that's different, right? It, it just makes no sense in that context. So in the context of, of how we three think about business and how I focus my research, managing staff utilization, is that really the issue? Or is the issue getting the output that's required, right? And it goes back to this really not any different from the answer that was earlier. And that is, if I've got staff that's remote, let's, you know, maybe we want to tidy it up a little bit to say, hey, you know, to get this project done by next Friday, we have to meet these deadlines. So I need you to provide me with the information to meet these deadlines. So I need you then to get me this on Thursday, this on, on Wednesday, and this on Tuesday, whatever time it takes you do that. Now, the question I have is why, why, do we, why are we concerned about the time it takes to do it? Well, I may be concerned because if they're inefficient, let's say, and I've got to, if it takes more time for them to do it, <clears throat> excuse me, then I may have to buy extra capacity to get things done. So I may spend more money. I get that. But part of it is we should be planning our output to tie into the rates of consumption of, of capacity that we expect. So if we think that something's going to take six hours, we say, you know what, we anticipate this taking six hours. Can you get it to me by the end of day tomorrow? Yes or no? If you think it's going to take eight or longer, let's have that conversation now to understand a little bit more about why we think it's going to take longer than the estimated six. But the objective should be to make sure that we can get it done and by, by the end of day tomorrow. Now, if it's truly going to take four hours and what we that ends up being, you know, if, I, if it's going to take four hours and they're sandbagging and saying it's going to take six, then that's a personnel issue. Why do we have a situation where people cannot be honest about what it is that they're going to do, mm -hmm. the work that they're going to do, and how long they think it's going to take? That's a that's an, uh, management issue, and that's a personnel issue. That's not about how I account for it. It's about how, you know, if I have people who can't be honest and say, hey, you know what, it's going to take me four hours, not six, then, you know, I shouldn't be looking at the timesheet to give me information about what I should do about that situation, if that, if that makes sense. No, it does. Do you have a sense, you know, we see all these uh, – surveys that came out during COVID, you know, a lot of people are working from home and some surveys showed that there was no increase in productivity. Other surveys showed there was a 30% increase in productivity. Do you have any feel for that? Or I, I mean, I question all these numbers. I do. It's, it's like benchmarking, right? With benchmarking, how I choose to calculate the benchmark metric and the data I use for the benchmark metric is going to be different company by company. So when companies say, well, you know, we had to do this work for a, a major home improvement company where they were looking at the cost of in the warehouse, pick, pack, and ship. And they wanted benchmark data. We had to spend $900 on this book that had benchmark data from different retail companies. But we don't even know if that was accurate because how one company does it's going to be different than how another company does it. And these, these models, um, you know, how am I defining productivity? Who am I surveying? Uh, what levels in the organization? What type of work? And even then, how do we know that the models are accurate? One of the things I run into all the time, you know, being a, a person focused on math is folks saying, well, you know, my model said, says this. Well, who went back and looked at your model? How, how do we know that the mathematical model that you use and the data that you use are appropriate for the situation? Because if no one's gone back and you just automatically assume that, well, I use math, therefore it must be valid. Um, we find in many cases, like with the calculation of costs, that the math is not valid. And so when I come up with these, these surveys, well, you know, it, it, you would think that if there were one value, right, kind of going back to our me measures and metrics conversations from previous uh, conversations that we've had both here and out outside, if there's one value, I should converge on that value. So if productivity went up by 10% or went down by 
I should be able to tell that by through the surveys. That should be reinforced with the, with the additional data that I get. If I don't have that reinforcement, the data don't mean anything, right? It's kind of back mm-hmm. to Seagal's law, right? Uh, two watches, I don't know what time it is. Two, two data points on productivity, I don't know whether it happened or not. And the question is, so what decisions are you looking to make with that information anyway? You know, are you going back to try to validate that you manage your, your resource utilization more effectively? Or are you trying to say that, uh, you know, we, we should have more pandemics because our productivity increases? I, I just don't understand in some cases what people are trying to do with this data as well. There's so many things with r- r- wrong with benchmarking, not the least of which I think is that it's pulling, like you said, the, the, the wrong data set. Uh, I think uh, Nassim Taleb makes this point. He says, you know, benchmarking data is the equivalent of saying, okay, well, if I have, if I have one company that, or a, one person that goes to a casino for 100 days and they go bust on day 28, there is no day 29. Right. But if I, if I have 100 people that go to a casino one day, well, whether when person 28 goes bust, it doesn't affect person 29. Mm-hmm. Right. So bench, benchmarking data is, is really based on that faulty collection. It's like we, we were by definition, the companies taking the benchmarking survey are already still in, in business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're already still alive. <laughs> you're, you're completely missing all of the ones that didn't participate in the benchmarking data that had the problem. So what are you benchmarking against and how is this going to be any better? Plus, you have the collection problem that you just mentioned, which I think is every time I've getting, gotten involved in, in benchmarking, that is, and there's a, like a session that debriefs about it. The biggest challenge is they, people either, either say, oh, I'm doing better than, than the benchmark or your data collection is wrong. Uh, because it, 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 so people don't do anything with it anyway. Like, yeah. do you actually see people make change, real business decisions based based on benchmarking data? I don't see it. I, I've actually seen it when they look at things such as um, IT spend as a, a percentage of revenue and trying to make decisions in terms of size of IT staff. The question is, why? <laughs> right? If, if if a company has a completely different business context in which they're operating in in which they're operating, you don't know that. So the decisions that they made to come to that number could be different than the decisions you need to make. So if we're focused on our business and getting our business better, then why does it matter what other people are doing? And to me, another thing it does, and it's kind of like best practices. To me, best practices is just copying, right? Oh, well, somebody else did this. First of all, who defined what a best practice is? And then second of all, all you're doing is saying, well, let me take this and do the same thing. You know, where's the business creativity? Where's the innovation? Where's the thought that goes into the knowledge organization that you have to make it better than others instead of trying to, to, to just meet the level of, of, of performance that others are? So to me, it's no fun to do benchmark data. It's no fun to do best practices. It's let's come up with the best way of doing business. Let's be better than everybody else. Let's, let's not try to look like everybody. So true. I think one uh, one author, I think this book goes about 15 years ago, they called it, it karaoke capitalism, <laughs> right? Be- benchmarking is karaoke capitalism. He says the, the problem is, is that no matter how drunk you get or the audience gets, you're still not Frank Sinatra. And you're just copying. You're just, and, and, and not only that, but it's a false copy. Oh, yeah. Yep. That's true. Because it's not genuine at all. Mm-hmm. So, Reginald, I know we've talked about this like at dinner and things with you know the three of us, but um, your theory of constraint certified, right? Gold wrap. Mm-hmm. C- can you just give a quick overview of that and what is the theory of constraints and why was Gold Rat such a profound thinker? 
You know, it's really interesting. The theory of constraints is a lot more than most people think about. Um, it started off with that book, The Goal, and we think about production constraints and such. But one of the things that Goldratt really focused on with the theory of constraints is that when we think about business, not only production activities and providing services, when you think about decisions that are made, um, cultural issues, et cetera, he created this process that allows us to take two situations, um, he called them undesirable effects. Sales are off and my people are un unhappy. And so he was able to, through modeling within the organization, testing assumptions and such, create this concept that helped you understand what was creating potentially both of those constraints for the organization. And then you go after that and try to fix it. So just like he talked about mm -hmm. with the goal that I look at the slowest operation within a process and improve that, and that increases the process throughput, it's the same thing when it comes to um, organizations. And so the theory of constraints focuses on trying to understand what is it that's, that's constraining performance. So is it policies and procedures that keeps us from being able to um, do business as effectively as we need to. For instance, when you take a look at some uh, nonprofits, they've got the therapists have to uh, spend a significant amount of time on doing paperwork, right? Or they can't get their funding. That becomes a constraint. And now we've got all these therapists who are now trying to figure out how to get their hours, right? That, that, that becomes an issue. Or when you start thinking about things such as uh, the impact of going through all the red tape that, that Ed talked about earlier, that can become a constraint within organizations. So it was brilliant in that it, it, it provided a, a framework or a context for being able to understand organizationally what are the things that are happening that could be constraining your performance, identifying those by starting with these undesirable effects again, and then mapping them all back to what could be causing that. And then you focus on trying to fix the cause, not the undesirable effect, right? So if I've got, for instance, salespeople who are ineffective and they've got a uh, a low hit rate on proposals, then we don't go and try to say, well, get your hit rate up. Why is that happening? Well, maybe it's because the, the incentive program is to get proposals out there in front of clients that haven't been justified or haven't been validated by the customer saying, yeah, this is what I want and this is what I'm planning to spend money on, right? But my, my incentive is just to put proposals in front of people, whether they say yes or not. So I, not, I don't go and, 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 and beat up the salesperson. I go and beat up the, the, the the, the policy and say, hey, this policy is driving this behavior. Let's eliminate the policy. So it was brilliant in terms of being able to do that. And I think what's, what's nice is that um, Goldratt was pretty much the definition of an iconoclast, right? A PhD physicist who was able to take a look at a, a different thought domain and apply concepts and say, hey, that, that doesn't make, really make sense. In my domain, this makes sense. If I apply it to yours, let's see what it looks like. And I think that because of that, and because he, he, he got such a, a, an area that we can all relate to, I think it really took off. Um, so starting with the goal and then developing the goal into the theory of constraints and the tools that he gave us to be able to analyze problems, I, I think it's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I think the fact that he was a physicist, it, 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 there's a lesson in there for all of us about how we need diversity of thought to come in and with different paradigms. Yeah. And, and I think the idea of lateral thinking is, is kind of fallen off by the wayside as well. You know, if you think back, was it 90s, when we're spending a lot of time talking about lateral thinking, and I, I think it works, you know, for, for my concepts, for example, I spend a lot of time looking at physics ideas. Um, I go to advanced math concepts and I say, okay, so from this perspective, how can I apply it to business? What would that look like? And now you've got a completely different way of looking at a problem that people locked into business can't see. 
And so that just opens up the world for being able to say, wow, you know, if this is true, then what else can be true? And it just allows you to just come up with some really creative stuff. And I just believe that people don't work hard enough at their craft to try to do those kinds of things anymore, to be as creative as they really could be. Awesome. Well, Reginald, this is great. Uh, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to askdsoe at verisage.com. We will post full show notes with our conversation with Reginald today and uh, a link to all of his books at thesoulofenterprise.com. Now we want to hear from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with, for the fifth time with Dr. Reginald Lee. And uh, Reginald, you are, is it adjunct professor, Xavier? Is that your... Uh, I'm a teaching professor. Teaching professor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not quite sure what the difference is, but perhaps we can talk about it sometime. But it's not in your track. Not in your track. No. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> on purpose, maybe. But, but, but uh, what, what I what, what wanted to ask you is about what, what are the, the students coming through right now? What, what, per, what do you perceive to be their overall attitude toward business? Hey, my, my experiences have been pretty positive um, with the students. I think there's, depending on the classes I'm teaching, there is uh, a level of curiosity that's there that I think is exciting. Um, I think that, especially in my management classes, uh, folks are coming in with certain perspectives on things. Uh, And so one of the things I do with that management class, and I think I may have shared this with you before, 
is I do debates. And with the debate, I will give them a topic and they will have to do research on both sides of the topic. So for example, uh, female pay. One side of the argument is women are paid the same as, or more than men. The other side of the argument is women are paid less than men. And part of what I'm trying to do with that is to help them understand elements associated with business that they may not necessarily think about because, you know, everyone comes in without experience in business, without really knowledge, uh, knowledge, without having knowledge. And then they come up with their own conclusions. Oh, well, of course, women are paid less than men. So by forcing them to think about this and say, well, there, there are certain circumstances where that may not necessarily be true. There are other circumstances where it is true to help them create a more global perspective with business. That's been exciting because when I hear them and I see them learn about different elements of business, it, it, it's just awesome. So, um, you know, teaching at a Catholic university, Catholic private university, um, you know, there, there are some folks who come in with, without an understanding of, of how business works. I get that. Um, so part of our job is to teach them. And part of my personal job is to bring in the outside world so that they can see things that others aren't, a lot, aren't necessarily having them see. Because you have a lot of folks who've never really stepped foot in a business outside of buying something, right? And so in, in that context... Uh, there's, it's hard for them to teach what the real world is teaching. And so I really also like when the real world, and they start asking questions about the real world when it resonates with them. Um, you know, I get questions such as, you know, when I get my undergraduate, should I go get my MBA? No. <laughs> Why? I thought it would be better for me to go get a job with an MBA. Yeah, but you still don't know anything about business, <laughs> right? You know, the theory, but even at the MBA, you can't really understand the context behind the theory. So go get some work done then come back and get your MBA. It'll be way more worth it, way more, way more valuable to you if you can do it that way. So um, I, it's been exciting to me. It's been challenging in some ways, but uh, you know, I, I love my students. I love interacting with them. I love the excitement. I love being challenged by them. It's, it's, it's a great place to be. And for the most part, the people who are coming through your classes are all business majors or are some of them, is this maybe something that they're dabbling in taking a class and, and maybe they're an English major and this is what, they, this is what the, uh, the business class that they happen to take? So for the most part, they're business majors, but I do get some who are not business majors. So for instance, I was talking on Wednesday night about a woman who's majoring, I think, in something related to biological sciences, but someone suggested she have a, a management minor, so she's taking business courses. So we do have some of those here um, coming through, and they, you know, in some cases, offer different perspectives. Now, I did teach a sustainability course a number of uh, years ago, and in that, that course, we had lots of different majors coming through and taking that. Uh, but... In, for the most part, I teach operations and supply chain, which is a core course. So all majors have to take that. All business majors have to take that. The same with, I, with the management course I teach. But when I teach my supply chain courses, that's all folks who have uh, business majors. Yep. Great. Uh, we got about five minutes left. Back over to you, Ron. I know you had a, a follow-up that you wanted to ask Reginald about. Yeah, Reginald, we had David Leary on a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about Six Sigma. You and I have had many private conversations about Six Sigma. Tell me, tell us what you think about Six Sigma. I don't, uh, I think Six Sigma has a place. I think that people think its place is much bigger than it really is. I like Six Sigma because it helps identify the source of problems, helps you identify solutions, help, helps you measure that the solution is having a, a positive impact on the organization. I think that's great. Where people, I think, get, wrapped around the axle is when they start focusing on things like cost savings. And they say, well, we got to do this. Our Six Sigma team has saved so much money. So now you've got these folks who are focused on the generation of savings and not necessarily the improvement of business. And I think it goes off the rails at that point, because I think that, you know, companies, what will happen is based on my experience is companies will bring in Six Sigma experts 
and there's low hanging fruit. So they save a whole lot of money. They say, oh, well, that worked. Let's bring in more. And so there's less low hanging fruit and they save less money. So now they're changing. Well, how, how do we search for more money? And the next thing you know, you've got a team of folks trying to chase really, really high hanging fruit. And so now you spent a significant amount of money with limited improvements to the organization. I think another thing that, and I've written about this with both Lean and Six Sigma, uh, about how they don't necessarily lead to the cash saving that we have, they focus on efficiency a lot. So, you know, I come in and, and we do this particular, you know, improve these steps and now we're more efficient. Okay, but I still have the same resources there. So I haven't saved this tens of millions of dollars that you promised because the people are still working there. And so just because they're more efficient doesn't mean that I'm spending less money. So I think that a lot of the savings that occur that are identified, I shouldn't say that occur, but that are identified with Six Sigma aren't true. They are absolutely not true. And I talk about that in my uh, profit pro- uh, project profitability book that, you know, people come up with these huge savings using Six Sigma and they, they you know, they, they pat themselves on the back and people sip champagne and, and they're all happy. But if you go back and say, did this happen? You know, did I spend 40 million fewer dollars as a result of this? I bet you in most situations, the answer is absolutely no. It's a, it's a representation of the improvements in efficiency. And because they do that, I think that, that the value of Six Sigma in that context is, is, is way more, excuse me, is way less than, than what it was touted. How does Six Sigma compare with Goldratt's theory of constraints? Is there overlap there? Yes and no. I would say the overlap would be, uh, you know, if, we, if we're looking in a production environment with theory of constraints, uh, things such as if I've got a constraint, I can use Six Sigma tools to help me understand that it's a constraint. I can use Six Sigma tools to help me understand why it's a constraint. And I can use Six Sigma tools to help me understand how to design an improvement so that the constraint is actually relieved so I can increase my throughput. So in that context, absolutely. Um, can Six Sigma be applied to some of the other thought processes that I mentioned before, like the, the clouds that we use in, in the theory of constraints? It could, um, because what you're looking at is trying to figure out, okay, so what, what, what indication do I have that this is a problem? And Six Sigma can help me understand that this particular issue is a problem, but you know, I still have to figure out, I have to use my business knowledge and acumen to be able to solve that problem. So I think it can help identify, it can help demonstrate the improvement, uh, when people start focusing on the cash savings associated with it, uh, that's when I think it fails. Right, right. This that reminds me about what Johnson wrote in Profit Beyond Measure that, you know, it's just all about, he's talking about Toyota, obviously, but it's just all about how to organize work. Yeah. How do we organize the work to get it, you know, the most effectively through the through the system? So, well, Reginald, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for reappearing for five times on the show. This is great. Uh, Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to be talking with Brian Dimitrovic and about his new book, Taxes Have Consequences. Yes, with co-author Arthur Laffer. Can't wait for that. Uh, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com for full show notes and also previews for upcoming shows. Also, you can contact me or Ed at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.
Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. Sustainable success is just around the corner. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, tune into Sustainable Success with host Chris Salem. Did you know that the path to success is a long path that started many years ago? The path you started on then determines what is happening now. Chris and his amazing guests in their field.